Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Um, what the subjects of the interview were really talking about were taking compliance space where uh, they become this trusted advisor where they understand the intricacies of the organisation's risk and can give them holistic advice. That's not what legal advice is for, that's what the compliance function is for. In this edition of the Jersey Professional Podcast, I speak to our Managing Director Naomi Burley about frolicking regulators all the way to RegTech Solutions and the role they can play in an environment where good compliance professionals might be hard to find. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine and the GRC Professional Online. And today we have our Managing Director, Naomi Burley. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Kwame. So we have a whole range of issues to get through today, um, but we will try not to bore you and just give you sort of the, I guess, the key points and learnings from these issues. And I guess the first thing we're going to look at is the news that we saw that Clayton Oots will be providing um, those interviews that he did of AMP employees to ASIC, uh, finally. Yes, yes. Look, this is an interesting one from this sort of territory claiming space, I guess, that is always a bit confusing for people between lawyers, um, external law firms, uh, your internal compliance team, your internal in-house counsel, and what use legal privilege is to you. So legal privilege is always a really grey area and, um, you know, again, pushing the boundaries on it. And we can see in this case that the court agreed that it wasn't subject to legal privilege and so it had to be given up. So what I guess everyone needs to take away from this is... um, that if you are going to conduct an investigation, conduct it in terms where you would be comfortable with it being transparent and recognise also your responsibility for transparency. So legal privilege is a privilege, not a right as well. And you are ultimately responsible to the regulator and your customers. So um, you need to sort of scope out what you're going to do and how you're going to investigate ongoing issues with that in mind. Right. Now, of course, the next thing that we saw coming out of the AFR today was also looking at that question of lawyers being treated more as trusted advisors, um, as opposed to, I guess, I'm not sure what it was before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, this, this, this one read as the complete claiming compliance as territory, as far as I was concerned. This idea that external law firms aren't already treated like trusted advisors, that's specifically what they're what they're contracted in for. But but what um, what the subjects of the interview were really talking about were taking compliance space where uh, they become this trusted advisor where they understand the intricacies of the organisation's risk and can give them holistic advice. That's not what legal advice is for. That's what the compliance function is for. You take your legal advice and you embed that in and you have a look at your operations and your risk and your frontline and you work with them to um, become compliant and embed that and and it's just it's simply a claiming territory space and and as um as i think it was david miller at the end of the article pointed out that's an inherently risky approach to providing legal advice and it's not really what they're intended to do um, compliance is your trusted compliance professional in your organization is your trusted advisor to take that legal interpretation and give you some practical outcomes and ways forward with that to be compliant and meet your obligations, to understand the intent of the law in practical terms as opposed to letter of the law legal advice. Now, if we have many members who once upon a time were 
um, providing that kind of legal advice and moved into compliance. Even they will be the first ones to say there is a difference between what you do um, in sort of handing over advice at one level and embedding that and working with boards to understand the implications for business decisions and risk-making decisions right down to the front line. And that's what our members already do. Yeah, so I guess it's just sort of pushing that message out there about, you know, getting people to understand what the role of the compliance professional is, um, making sure the organisation gets that difference between can you and should you. That's right. And, you know, it it opens you up to a can of worms uh, and takes you into that grey area that we just looked at with Clayton Utes with this, what's what's legal advice, what's legal professional privilege, what is your actual role if you're an external law firm coming in. So if you want to step over the line you have to be really really careful because it can result in you taking on um, risks yourself that you didn't intend to yeah. and also it can also end up in poor results for the organization and for customers you only have to look at Danielle Press's comments uh, recently on the slow response to compensation for fees for no service where she said some banks are taking an over legalistic approach to analysing what needs compensation and that's from again a poor application of legal advice. The advice is probably sound but the application is poor and it's resulting in poor outcomes for both the banks, they've now got ASIC breathing down their necks and for the customers who are not being compensated in a timely manner. Some of these notifications date back to 2015 so they have plenty of time to action this. Right. And of course, you mentioned the banks just now, and that leads into the next thing that we were going to look at today. Um, a comment again for those who have read the AFR would have seen James Shipton um, from ASIC sort of responding to anonymous comments from senior, I guess, senior employees from banks. Um, so, sort of not really, I guess they don't really like what they've seen coming out of these regulations. I, I, yeah. I'm particularly amused by them accusing ASIC of being on a frolic. I don't think I've ever come <laughs> across a regulator frolicking anywhere, but in any case. Yeah. But I guess it goes back to that serious question of change and culture and conduct. Um, Ab- yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, you know, I would have to agree, and, and our members are working in a lot of these institutions and, and working for the greater good and for better outcomes. But the reality is that we are not getting an overwhelming feedback from members that they have been resourced adequately to respond in a timely manner uh, and that they are being um, taken any more seriously than they have been in the past and these are the champions for compliance they're not getting extra resourcing or extra staff um, to enact the change and and I would have to agree that Uh, We knew the Royal Commission was coming. The Royal Commission took quite a period of time. There was plenty of testimony during that time. The interim report was very straightforward and none of the recommendations were um, a surprise. So there still seems to be a bit of this, let's wait and see what happens after the election kind of attitude, um, at least visible on the surface. And, And it's unfortunate that also what the Royal Commission highlighted was that customers for them, perception is 100% of the reality. So if you don't look like you are taking any action, then as far as they're concerned, you aren't. And the same from the regulators. If you are not feeding through or responding to inquiries, like they're not, um, David Locke has highlighted that the lack of response and absolutely no increase in resources for internal dispute resolution. And that would have been the number one action item that would have been really easy to tick off your list. Um, excellent. And of course, speaking about those recommendations, that also leads into something else we saw come out this week uh, about the government sort of backtracking on that banning of the 
I think it's the um, the mortgage broker oh. remuneration model. Yes, yes. my brain went yes. blank there. It did. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, there's a there's a list of things that the government's backing down. <laughs> Where would we like to start? I get, yeah. Look, very definitely. So so this is this is a payoff for that wait and see attitude. Yeah. So we're rewarding holding off taking any action again we're rewarding lobbying now i understand it's a really complex problem mm. but we also know from the royal commission and we also know from human behavior that if you are motivated remuneration is is a is a high motivator for conduct and if you are rewarded potentially for poor behavior accidentally in a model there's no, there's no reason why mortgage brokers shouldn't be paid for their services but if you can be accidentally incentivized to behave inappropriately, then um, human beings make those decisions. So this really does need to be addressed in a complex way. So it does need analysis rather than just saying, oh, well, we're not going to bother anymore. Mm. And, you know, I guess this leads me back into to Anna Bly's comments as well in response to, to James Shipton. Um, she was disappointed as well to see that uh, that the government had backflipped on it, but the language again in her statements are all around that the Royal Commission is a disruption, as opposed to calling for um, fundamental reform of business models, even going down that deeply, and the way that compliance is treated within organisations, um, and the suggestion that. The change is being resisted by pockets of um, resistance and pockets of people further down the front line than senior management, ironically, um, according to to the ABA, that don't want to change. Now, this bad apples theory is just a nonsense when you look at the amount of data pulled out in the Royal Commission, that some of these things are systemic issues, like the brokering fees, that, are, that um, need complex... Um, analysis and sophisticated change and again I don't see anyone resourcing the very people who can help with this change our compliance professionals our members better to um, to undertake this kind of change and suggest ways forward I don't see any of that happening in real life and I'm certainly not hearing it from members Okay. Well, of course, we're not all doom and gloom at the GRCI. <laughs> we also like to look at some solutions. Um, so the RegTech Association had their conference. I think it's called Accelerate RegTech uh, just about, what, two weeks ago? Yeah, it would be yeah. now. Um, and of course, that is exposed that interesting intersection between technology, um, the financial industry, as well as the regulators and how everybody can come together to collaborate, I guess, to create a, mm. a better ecosystem. Yeah. Um, I guess what we're looking at i guess from an industry perspective or our members really yeah. is finding those reg tech solutions that sort of meet their needs and you know sort of dealing with those concerns of having to plug in too many different providers at the same time or whether it's an end-to-end yeah. -end solution and that kind of thing we've been watching this space and working really closely with our members who've been in this technology space for some time and with the RegTech Association who have been really, really supportive and obviously really supportive of great compliance outcomes. So, you know, that's sort of been our feedback that at the start of anything innovative like this, you'll have people who identify a problem and solve a, a single problem. And as that evolves, they will start, and that's that's exactly what the RegTech Association is for, they will start to work together and provide something that's practical. I think from our members' point of view, 
uh, we're anticipating and really looking forward to technology assisting in our roles. Um, the, the mythology that compliance professionals themselves will be out of work with technology is just a nonsense again. Um, but we're really looking forward to some sensible and viable solutions coming forward and continue to engage with that technology space because there's some really, really clever people out there. Um, but I guess it is that fear of jumping in too early yeah. um, and taking on a solution. And the reality is that way back when a lot of this stuff was really clunky and wasn't in the cloud and wasn't providing great solutions, um, there, there were some, uh, you know, compliance teams that were burnt by that experience and you end up with um, you know data sets sitting all over an organization and it isn't cohesive and it hasn't helped them be compliant at all so those are the challenges for the reg tech um, innovators and for the reg tech association mm. and you know we're very very happy to continue to be in dialogue with them because we're definitely interested in a solution yeah I, I think it was interesting um, one of the things that came out of the Reg Tech Association, we spoke about this, was um, Samantha Carroll's comment <laughs> about the sort of, I guess, the struggle to find good compliance professionals because there are not that many of them in the industry. Yeah, yeah. And at first, you know, you heard me be outraged on half of our members. <laughs> However, when you, when you dig down, you know, she's not wrong. Mm. Of, of all our members, so we have two and a half thousand members, and those are members who are committed to being a compliance professional. They uh, may have other work experience and other qualifications that make it completely appropriate for them to be compliance professionals. But those are the good ones. There are more than two and a half thousand organisations out there. And of our members, some of them are the teams in an organisation. So that means that out there in the real world, there are people um, groping about in the dark trying to do compliance who've mm -hmm. had no professional support and uh, who knows how they're qualified. But again, if you even drill down even, even further, of our members and of the compliance professionals out there in the world, there are only about 500 of them who have bothered to become qualified to undertake specific compliance and risk management training in this space. So that, she, she, you know, to, to understand what proactive compliance is all about, that requires a really dedicated skill and knowledge development. And yeah, 500 people out there who have done that, that isn't a lot of people. Well, um, I guess hopefully uh, with that, what was that prediction that we had earlier this year that this would be the year of risk compliance in terms <laughs> of investment? Hopefully that will change by the end of this year. It will. Look, we're seeing, we're seeing some people who are recruiting and they know they can't get already qualified compliance professionals. So they are recruiting uh, suitably um, interested candidates. They're putting them through their paces and, and finding out their level of commitment to compliance and then putting them through the training, which is... Um, immensely pleasing to see and a real commitment to recognizing that what the skill set and knowledge and specialized area that they're dealing with so it, that's great to see and we just hope to see more of it okay great is there anything else that we'd like to share with our oh listeners? we can talk about this all day <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of a podcast we've been told to keep it short and sweet so we will all right well in that case thank you very much naomi thank you for listening to the GRC professional podcast this podcast was produced by the GRC Institute and the original music was written by Rob Neary. <laughs>